In this season of Advent, what we're doing, we're in this series entitled The Mothers of Jesus. And what we're doing is we're looking at the lives of four women that God highlights uh, that belong to Jesus's genealogy. And we're looking at their stories to help us understand his story and really the, the meaning and the reason of why he came. And today, we're, we come to this woman, Ruth. And, you know, we just read 18 verses, but where Ruth's story is kind of different than these other women's stories is her story is not just a chapter or two. It actually uh, covers, spans an entire book. And so because of that, we're going to jump in. And what I want to do is kind of give a 30,000-foot flyover of her story, and then let's make some connections to how her story relates to both Jesus and to us. As we read, we, we learned that Ruth's story takes place in the time of the judges, and the time of the judges was a very dark and dreadful time in Israel's history. It was a vile time and a violent time. And what we learn in verse 2 is to make matters worse, not only is there all this violence and wickedness, there's also a famine in the land. And there's a family that's suffering in the midst of this famine. It's Naomi and Elimelech. And they have two sons, Malon and Kilion, which we just read about, uh, which are not the best names for kids, right? Malon, Kilion. You, you, <laughs> it's even stranger when you learn that their names mean sickly and frail. Um, could you imagine name? What am I named after? You're named after sickness and frailty. Uh, but, but their names were given because that was the reality they were born into. They're in Bethlehem. The name Bethlehem actually means house of bread, but there's no bread in Bethlehem. They're starving. And so they give birth to these two sons, and they, they stick it out in their homeland as long as they can, but eventually they're forced to flee, and they go to a place called Moab. Now, Moab is a dark place in the Bible. Nothing good happens in Moab. Nothing good comes out of Moab. Moab is a place that most Israelites would do anything in their power to avoid. Moab traced its origins back to a man named Lot. And if you know anything about Lot, you know Lot was not a good man. Lot actually had incestuous relations with two of his daughters. One of those daughters gave birth to a son. His name was Moab, and the region was named after him. And so Moab was a place Israelites wouldn't want to go. They wanted nothing to do with the Moabites because the Moabites didn't worship the one true God. And furthermore, the Moabites, they, they were polytheistic, and they were known to sacrifice children uh, to their many gods. And so the Israelites tried to avoid Moab at all cost. It was filled with so much darkness. But you know what? There wasn't a famine in the land there. And so Naomi and Elimelech and their two sons, they set off on this journey to this dark place. And we learn in verse 3 that while they're seeking refuge in Moab, Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. She was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. After they had lived there about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. In just a few short verses, three wives become three widows. And this was bad news for Orpah and Ruth, the Moabite women, 
You know, that was a patriarchal culture, patriarchal culture, even much more so than ours is. And in that day, your worth, your identity was totally wrapped up, uh, if you were a woman, in the lives of the men in your life. And to be a widow was to be extremely vulnerable. And so Orpah and Ruth, it's a bad situation for them. But this, this news of not just the death of Elimelech, but of Malon and Killian, that's like a death knell for Naomi. Because Naomi's a widow, but she's also older. She doesn't have parents that she can go back to. Ruth and Orpah, they could potentially go back to their parents. Ruth does, or Naomi doesn't have parents she can go back to. Uh, she doesn't have a whole lot of hope of getting remarried. <clears throat> Furthermore, in that day, they didn't have life insurance policies, 401ks, retirement accounts. Your security in old age was wrapped up in the lives of your sons. They would work, you'd raise them, then they would work hard and take care of you until you died. But her sons have died. Her husband's died. For, for Naomi, everything she's loved, all of her hopes, all of her dreams, it's buried under this defiled dirt in Moab, this strange, dark land. And one woman who wrote a commentary on the book of Ruth, Carolyn James, she said this, and it sums it up well. She says, in a male-centered culture that ascribed value to women based on their relationships to men, these husbandless, sonless women hold no interest to anyone. In many minds, especially in the minds of the three women themselves, their story is over. There's nothing left to tell. And so for an Israelite, you would start reading the book of Ruth and you would get to verse five and you would think the end. But the great irony is it's not the end. This is actually just the beginning of the story. It's the beginning of the real story. Because as we read, word gets back to Naomi that Bethlehem, you know, the house of bread is filled with bread once again, that the famine has left the land. And so she decides to return home and initially, her daughter-in-laws say, we're going to go with you. And she says, why would you go with me? She said, why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? She says, stay here in Moab. Like, I appreciate your, your loyalty to me and your service and everything else. I'm not going to have more sons. Even if I did have sons, do you really want to wait around for 18 or 20 years for them to grow up to be men? Go back home. Go to your parents your Moabites, Israelites want nothing to do with you. It's not going to be safe for you to come with me. And so Orpah agrees, and she turns back to her homeland and to her gods. But Ruth refuses. And in one of the most famous passages in the book of Ruth, Ruth says to Naomi, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people, and your God will will be my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if anything but death separates you and me. What's interesting here is Ruth doesn't use the generic word for God. She uses the personal name of God, Yahweh. And so we learn that that she has learned something about the one true God through her relationship with Naomi and maybe through her husband. 
And so she's saying, listen, I know tragedy has struck. I know that we're at the end of our rope, but I also know something about your God, and I'm going to follow you because you follow him, and I want to go back to your homeland. Naomi realizes that there's no talking Ruth out of it, and so they join together, and they make the long journey back from Moab to Bethlehem, broken, bruised, and battered. And when they roll into Bethlehem, people kind of recognize Naomi. But it's been a long time. It's been over a decade. We read in verse 19. So the two women went, went on until they came to Bethlehem. When they arrived in Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Now, Naomi, her, word, her, her name actually means sweet. And so when they call her, they see her, Naomi, they're saying, sweet, sweet. And she says, no, no, call me bitter. And so we have this interesting contrast. We have Ruth the Moabite who says, I'm very interested in your God, Yahweh. And we have Naomi saying, no, he's turned his back on me. And because they did this long journey, because they're both widows, when they arrive in Bethlehem, whatever uh, store of food they had was likely consumed during their journey. And so they're starving. But we're told at the very end of chapter one that when they arrived in Bethlehem, it was during the harvest season. And this, this was really good news. The reason this was good news is because God had commanded his people during harvest season to specifically not harvest the sides of their fields or the corner of their fields. He said, I want you to leave a portion of your harvest out there for the poor and the vulnerable, for the widows, the orphans, the immigrants. This shows you something about the heart of our God. He doesn't say, you're my special people and I love you. He says, hey, you're going to be blessed with a harvest, but make sure that you leave some for the people in the most desperate of situations. And so in verse 2 of chapter 2, Ruth the Moabite, it's interesting, I want to remind us, don't forget, she's a Moabite. Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out and began to glean in the fields behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. It might be easy for us to miss, but this here, this is the the first faint flicker of hope in the entire book. We talked about this a few weeks ago. In that culture, if a husband died, the custom was that the widow could marry one of the husband's brothers, and that brother would take care of her, provide for her financially, maybe even provide a family for her, give her children, and restore to her her honor and her place in society. And so in telling us that Ruth just so happens 
to show up in the field of Boaz, who just so happens to be a distant relative of her first husband. The narrator's trying to tell us this story's not all darkness. There's some light breaking through. But Ruth, she doesn't, she doesn't see the light just yet because she doesn't know who Boaz is. And even if she did know who Boaz was, she's a Moabite. No Israelite is going to, to entertain marrying a Moabite. People were filthy. They were despised. Boaz, likewise, he doesn't know who Ruth is either. He sees her gleaning in the field, and he asks around. He says, who's, who's the Moabite in my field? And he's told that it's Naomi's daughter-in-law. And here, he goes up to her once he finds out that she's related to Naomi, and he says, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Seems a little like a pickup line when you first read it, like Old Testament pickup line. Listen, don't go glean in another man's field. I want you to stay here with me. That's <laughs> what I thought it was until I read the commentaries. Oh, that's not what's going on. Uh, he's not trying to pick her up. He's trying to protect her. You see, as you keep reading, he says, stay here with my servant, girls. Watch the field where the men are harvest and follow along after the girls. And then you have this kind of ominous like sentence. He says, I have told the men not to touch you. Whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. So he's not trying to pick her up. He's trying to protect her. Remember, this is the time of the judges. This is the darkest time in Israel's history. In Judges 19, we're told that a woman was brutally assaulted, murdered, and chopped to pieces. And all of that took place in this little town of Bethlehem. And so Boaz, he's Ruth, and he recognizes that she is in a very vulnerable position, that she would be an easy target. And even later, Naomi, when she finds out that Ruth is, was in Boaz's field, she kind of says, oh, thank goodness. You would have been in a lot of danger if you were in another man's field. And so Boaz, he, he wants not to take advantage of her, not to use her. He wants to protect her. He wants to step into his God-given role and honor her. And we're told when he says this, he says, I'm going to take care of you. Verse 10, at this, she bowed down with her face to the ground and she exclaimed, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me? A foreigner. Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother in your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. He's saying, listen, God hasn't forgotten you. And I'm proof of that. And then he invites her back and he says, hey, come and have a meal. And she has the best meal she's had, you know, in memory. You know, she doesn't just get a little bit of bread. She gets some vinegar. She gets the dip to dip it in, you know, and then he brings out the roasted grain and she has this incredible lunch. And then she gets up from the lunch to go out and continue to glean in the field. And in verse 15, we're told that as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men even if she gathers among the sheaves, don't embarrass her. Rather, pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up. And don't rebuke her. 
So what he's saying is, hey, if she's, she kind of wanders away from the sides of the field or you know, she, she doesn't follow the proper customs, don't embarrass her. And actually, what I want you to do is, as you're harvesting, I want you to just kind of drop some stuff in her path. Make it easy for her. And we're told that by the end of that day, she'd gathered about 40 pounds of grain and she comes back home, you know, to Naomi, who they've been starving. She's got all this grain. She kind of flops it down. And Naomi's like, what in the world? Like, you don't get this kind of grain from gleaning. Where, where did you get all of this? And she said, I was in the field of this man named Boaz. And when Naomi hears the word, the name Boaz, she kind of flips out. Verse 20 of chapter 2, she says, The Lord bless him. This man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen, redeemers. Now, to understand the story, we got to just hit pause here for a second and, and talk about what this kinsman redeemer means. What's that phrase mean? When Naomi and Elimelech, they went to Moab, you have to understand they sold their land. And when the Israelites came into the promised land, every family got a portion of land, but they sold their portion. And so now, Naomi, she doesn't have any, she doesn't have any land. She doesn't have any standing. She has nothing. But there was a provision that God made that a close relative, out of just the kindness and generosity of their hearts, they could, in a situation like Naomi's, they could go and buy back the land that once belonged to you. And even if you owned that land, if a relative wanted to buy it back, you had to sell it. You couldn't keep it. And so Naomi hears about Boaz, and she's not just excited because he gave Ruth grain. She's not just excited because he's shown them some kindness. She gets excited because she says, this is the man who can come and lift us out of our poverty and our brokenness. He can buy back my land. He could give it to me. And in doing so, he could restore our place and restore our hope and give us a future. The one catches. Anyone who buys the land has to marry Ruth, the daughter-in-law, and has to care for Naomi. And as you continue reading, we'll fast forward a little bit. It seems like there's a little spark in the air between, you know, Naomi or between Ruth and Boaz. But then at the very end uh, of chapter 2, we're told that, you know, Ruth stayed close to the servant girls of Boaz to glean until the barley wheat harvests were finished and she lived with her mother-in-law and that's it. And so it seems like something's going to happen, then nothing happens. And Naomi, she, she takes a risk and she says, listen, this guy, ladies, you've probably dated men. Maybe you're married to one of these guys who kind of shows interest in you but never actually moves forward. That's what Naomi's dealing with. And she says, listen, let's, let's help move this thing along. This is our shot. Let's move this along. And we told, you know, I, I kind of skipped over it. Boaz was a man who was revered and respected, a man of noble character. He was a man that everyone in Bethlehem would look up to. And so she says, this is your chance. This is my chance. And so she develops this plan. <clears throat> we read about the plan in chapter 3. And before I read the plan to you, I just want you to know it's kind of weird. Uh, what happens here, it's just kind of strange. And I don't think you should do it. If you did it, you could get arrested. Uh, if you did it, you could also, you would most likely be put under church discipline if you're a member here. But God uses it. And so... 
Let's just get into it. Um, she says, tonight, he, this is Naomi speaking. She's talking to Ruth. She says, tonight, Boaz will be winnowing barley, barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying, then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. And so just imagine Boaz here. It's the end of the harvest season. It's been a great season. He's on the threshing floor, which is basically like counting the money. You know, here's all of the grain. He has this great meal. He has a few drinks. He's feeling great. He's in good spirits. He goes and just kind of passes out on the grain. And while he's over there, Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. This next verse, really? In the middle of the night, something startled him. Yeah, it was the woman who uncovered his feet and was laying there. And he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Now, like I said, this is kind of weird. It gets even weirder when you, you know that uncovering feet in the Old Testament can potentially mean uncovering a lot more than feet. It's a euphemism, and I'll just leave it there. And so there's a lot of speculation about what, what happened. I don't think sexual immorality happened here. Uh, and I would tell you if I did, I'm pretty honest. Like, no, this is just really weird. Uh, but I don't think that happened, but I do think that there was uh, some definite kind of intimacy and sexual tension happening here that she crawls into bed and, you know, Boaz, he has cold feet, and so she uncovers his feet, makes them even colder, crawls there, and he wakes up and he's like, who, who are you? You know, he's, he's probably still feeling a little, feeling that the effects of the good spirits he had earlier, and Ruth asks him to marry her. And she said, yeah, Yahweh, he spread his, his wings over me, and I want you to spread your wings over me. And in asking him to marry her, she's also asking him to buy back Naomi's land and care for them both. Now, <laughs> I think for most of us in a situation like this, it would be like, you got 10 seconds, and then I call the police. But something's different, different happens with with Boaz, he says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. His kindness is greater than that which he showed earlier. You haven't run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. Now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. That's why I don't think anything too shady happened here. Everyone knew that Boaz was a man of great character. Here he's praising her for her character, and he says, I'll marry you. But there's one hitch. There's another relative who has essentially the first right of refusal to buy back the land for Naomi. And so Boaz goes to him and he says, hey, Naomi's back. This was her land. You got first right of refusal to buy it and give it back to her if you want. And the guy says, yeah, it sounds great. I'd love to buy it. Take part in that. And he says, oh, there's one other thing. 
with the land comes a Moabite wife and Naomi, and you got to care for them both. And the other guy says, you know what, I'm good. Uh, I like the land. I didn't want everything that came in the, the whole package. And so the way is clear for Boaz to marry Ruth. And on their wedding day, we're told in verse 11 of chapter 4, then the elders and all those at the gate said, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And then Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son. And they named him Obed. And he was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. It's the end of the story. And Ruth's story is one of the greatest stories of redemption in the Bible. It shows us the power of God to redeem and the heart of God to redeem. And so with the rest of our time, I want to talk about this redemption that the Lord offers, and we're going to talk about it under three headings. I want to talk about the hope redemption offers, then we'll talk about the shape that it takes, and lastly, the change that it, that it brings about in us. But the hope that redemption offers is that wherever you are right now, whatever darkness is in your life, whatever brokenness you're carrying with you, whatever bruises are upon you, they don't have to have the final say in your life. The hope of redemption, I mean, it's so obvious and yet it's so often overlooked, is that God doesn't want to leave us in our suffering, our pain, our brokenness, and our bruises forever. It's what we see in the story when Naomi and Ruth stumble into Bethlehem at the end of chapter one. It's like they're rolling into town in their old beater that's making noises. They're just at the end of the rope. They have no money. They're homeless. They're living out of their car. It seems so dark. They went through all this tragedy, all this loss. It seems like their story is over. And then the language in verse two, as it turned out, Ruth found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz. As it turned out, it just so happened that she found herself working in a field belonging to Boaz. See, the hope redemption offers is that while brokenness and bruises, they can tell you where you've been in life, they can tell you what you've gone through, your brokenness and your bruises, they don't have to tell you where you're going, and they don't have to define your future. There's so much brokenness in this room. You know, one of the challenges, the first church I pastored was in a very, very poor area among very, very poor people, and brokenness was all at the surface. 
You know, I remember preaching. I had one guy come in with a bloody face and just kind of walk straight down the aisle as I'm preaching. I'm trying to figure out what do I do? Like, this is crazy. He was an addict. He was high. All kinds of brokenness. And I was so clear there. And then I moved here to the east end of Louisville. The east end of Louisville is pretty fresh and crisp. You know, on the outside, everything looks pretty good. But there's so much brokenness. We're just better at hiding it. The brokenness just gets a little lower when we know how to put a smile on our face. There's so much brokenness in this room this morning, and for some of you, the brokenness might be broken relationships with a friend or a family member. Broken relationships that, that seem beyond repair. Maybe the brokenness for you is the death of a marriage, the death of a dream of a happy family. Maybe for some of you, the brokenness is some sin that really has its claws in you and it's an addiction and no one even knows about it because you hide it really well and you've actually structured your life in such a way to hide it. And for others of you, maybe the brokenness is just a darkness in your spiritual life that refuses to lift. And you don't want to say anything because you were raised in the church, you know you're supposed to believe in God and so you just keep that to yourself and you feel like you're going through the motions. So much brokenness. There's also so many bruises in this room. Bruises are the things like the suffering that you've gone through, the loss of a loved one, the loss of a child, hurt, pain, stuff in your story that maybe, you know, things that happened to you a long time ago that, you know, maybe in the last few years have just kind of come to the surface and you're still trying to reconcile what you thought your childhood was and what it actually was. And you kind of don't even want to deal with it because you're afraid, what happens if I go down that road? I'd rather just leave it buried. And so we have all of this brokenness in the room, all these bruises in the room. And I think so often we don't want to deal with it. We don't even want to talk about it. And so we just, we kind of leave them untouched and they end up dictating our future. Because you know what? Pain and suffering that's not transformed by the power of God is transferred in our life to other people and to different things. And the hope of redemption, the hope of Ruth's story, the hope of the story of her descendant Jesus is that God is in the business of bringing redemption to the worst of situations. God is in the business of redeeming the worst forms of brokenness. And the deepest of bruises. You know, Ruth's story, she's a Moabite. Husband dies, she's a widow. And then her great-grandson becomes David, the greatest king Israel ever knew. And then another one of her descendants about a thousand years later is a man named Joseph who becomes the adoptive father of a baby named Jesus. And Jesus Christ, he was the ultimate demonstration of the fact that God, not only is God not a stranger to brokenness and bruises, but God wants to step into them and transform them, and he refuses to let them have the final say, the last word. And so he steps in, his body's broken, his body's bruised, so that we can be redeemed, and so that we can be healed. He shines a light in so we don't have to live in darkness anymore. 
And so I want to say this really clearly this morning. God, he doesn't want your brokenness, your bruises, your sin, your shame to be the thing that defines you. He's moved heaven and earth to make it so that doesn't define you. So if you've never put your faith in him, I want to encourage you. You can turn to Christ and he takes it. And he offers healing and hope. He promises to cleanse you of your sin. If you've put your faith in him, but you still don't feel this, I want to challenge you because I see so many people in the church who live with a sense of resignation. I was talking with someone not too long ago. They had a particular addiction in their life, and they said, this is just always the way it's going to be. So what do you mean? Well, I just don't see myself ever changing. (laughs) Jesus Christ came from heaven to earth to save you and to redeem you, and you think this one particular sin he bumps up against, he's like, I can't deal with that one, sorry. No. Like, God is in the business of redemption. And so we as a people, we need to long for it, we need to pray for it, we need to hope for it, and it enables us, when we understand this, to look at our life and to say, this this is, this is some leftover stuff that needs to be transformed. This is some baggage that I'm still carrying with me that I need Jesus to step into and transform. And he will. That's the promise and the hope. Some of you are saying, well, I've done that, and, it, and it's hard, and it doesn't seem like it's working. At least the second application, the shape redemption takes. One of the things that makes the book of Ruth so powerful, I think, is there are no miracles in this book. Do you notice that? Like there's no dramatic displays in nature, a burning bush, parting of the sea, massive flood, whatever. There's no powerful visions. There's no miracles of healing. There's nothing spectacular. It's actually a book filled with a lot of seemingly mundane details sprinkled with just a few interesting coincidences. You see, Ruth, Ruth teaches us that God works in the ordinary. And Ruth is a book for people who, who only see God work in the ordinary. Ruth's a book for people who, who don't see God move in dramatic and spectacular ways. You know, I didn't come to faith until high school. And it seemed like every Bible study I was a part of, there was that one person, maybe you had someone like this, who they always had just these, the most incredible stories of what God was doing in their life. And it's like, then this happened and this happened and it was crazy. And then this showed up and God moved in this powerful way. And it's like, hey, what happened in your life this week? Well, I read my Bible once and then I I didn't, I fell asleep while I was reading it. Like, (laughs) there are some people and some of you are these people and that's awesome. Like you, you have just these powerful, amazing encounters with God that are spectacular and dramatic, but there's a whole lot of you that don't have that, and Ruth's telling you that's okay, because God doesn't just work through the dramatic and the spectacular. He works through the ordinary and the mundane. It just so happened that Ruth wandered into the field of a man named Boaz, See, this is a book that reminds us that God is always at work. Even when we can't see it, even when it doesn't feel like it, we must never lose hope because God is always at work doing countless number of things for his glory and our good. You must never overlook the signs of hope and the acts of providence in your life because that's what Naomi does, right? All this tragedy strikes and she comes back to Bethlehem and she says, I'm empty. 
Think about that, though. She wasn't empty. She had someone standing right beside her. This incredible woman, Ruth, who said, I'll leave my family. I'll leave everything I have. And I'm going to be with you until you're in the ground. I'm going to stick close to you until you die. And this, this woman, Ruth, you know, is going to change Naomi's life forever and give her a legacy that's going to last an eternity. And yet Naomi in that moment says, I'm empty. I have nothing. My life, it's entirely and completely hopeless. See, Naomi, can't, she can't see the grace of God in the ordinary. She can't look and say, wait, God hasn't abandoned me. Look at Ruth. One of the interesting things is, is at the end of the book, after Ruth gives birth to a son, in verse 13, it says, Ruth gave birth to a son. And then in verse 14, the very next verse, it says, the woman said to Naomi, praise be to the Lord. Now just hit pause there for a second. Ruth gave birth. It's her child. And all the women came and they said to Naomi, not Ruth. He said, praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a kinsman or redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life and sustain you in your old age for your daughter-in-law, who loves you and who is better to you than seven sons has given him birth. Now that phrase, better than seven sons, seven is a, a number of perfection, sons, security, hope, everything. She's saying Ruth is better than seven sons. Look at how God's provided for you. You couldn't see him, but he's always been there. I think this is another way that Ruth's story prepares us for the Christmas story because God, when he decided to enter into creation, he didn't come with dramatic displays, power, and might. He came the same way all of us came. He was born into the world, and he was crying, and he was cold. One of the accusations against Jesus was he was too ordinary. Isn't this Mary's son? And even in the, the greatest act this world's ever known to everyone who was watching it as Jesus is dying on the cross, it just seemed like a really sad, tragic scene. And it was through all of those seemingly ordinary ways that God changed the course of human history. God is always at work tends to work in the ordinary. And just as a side note, he also tends to work on his own timetable. The season of Advent, it's a season that the church has set aside to kind of learn to wait. Season of Advent's a time the church remembers that Israel waited a long time for Jesus to come. And sure, God gave promises along the way, and he gave these great promises in Malachi, and then it was silent for 400 years before Jesus was born. So God says, I am going to redeem you and save you. I'm going to fix all of this. And then it's just 100 years, 200 years, 300, 400 years of silence. That didn't mean God broke his promise. God shows up. And sometime early in the church, church history, people of God sat around and said, you know, God is faithful. He always keeps his promises, but he does it on his own timetable. And a critical part of what it means to be a Christian is to know how to wait, trusting God, even when we don't see it all, trusting he'll come through because he always comes through. And so they said, let's, let's create this season of Advent. Let's learn to wait in the midst of suffering. Let's learn to wait as we anticipate promises. 
In the season of Advent, it's actually pictured really well in the gifts that we give our kids. You know, a lot of you have presents under your tree right now. If you're like me, I love giving gifts. And so as soon as I get the gifts, I want to give my kids the gifts. You know, it's December 3rd. Hey, I got you something really cool. My wife's like, stop it. Don't tell them. Wrap it and put it under the tree. That's the promises. There's, there's a tree that underneath are all of God's promises, and they're wrapped and they're waiting, and God's saying they're all yours, because they are. All those presents, my kids, they're their presents, but they can't have them yet. It's going to be a little while. My kids don't understand why. Sometimes I don't understand why. Let's just do it now. We got them. It's be awesome. But a big reason why the Bible's really clear about is that learning to wait, it grows us in perseverance, which grows us in character, which grows us more into the image of Christ. The shape redemption takes. God works in the ordinary and he works on his own timetable. Lastly, the change redemption brings. One of the most mysterious things, at least on the surface, is why Boaz shows such kindness to Ruth. He's a man of noble character. He is, you know, an Israelite's Israelite, a man's man, someone everyone respected. And Ruth, contrary to a lot of other women listed in the Old Testament, there's no mention of her physical beauty. She might have been beautiful, beautiful, but she might not have been. There's no mention of her physical appearance. There is mention repeatedly that she's a Moabite who was despised. So you have to ask, why in the world would Boaz show this kind of love for Ruth, the Moabite? It's confusing until you, you realize that Boaz... He was the son of Rahab. And as Dr. Pennington preached about last week, Rahab, she was a Canaanite prostitute. She was a racial outsider, a moral outcast, someone that you know, any upstanding Israelite would want nothing to do with. But she, along with her entire family, they were saved during Israel's conquest of Jericho because she hid the spies. Even though she was immoral, even though she was a racial outsider, she was welcomed into God's family. And this was the story that Boaz was born into. And he's being raised. His mom, you want to know your story? Here's your story. I was once a prostitute, once a Canaanite. God welcomed me in, regardless of my sin, regardless of me being an outsider. Now it makes sense why when Ruth, the Moabite, shows up in his field, he doesn't see her the way most men would have, like a parasitic outsider who would be a burden on the community, just, just another mouth to feed, someone else we got to take care of, or even worse, a more sinister, maybe an easy target to prey upon. He doesn't see either of those things in her. He sees something very dear and familiar to him. He sees a picture of his mom. It was an outsider, and it was in a very vulnerable place. And so Boaz goes to great lengths to protect her and provide for her. I hope you're seeing the lesson here. To experience the grace of God, to experience the redeeming power of God, is to be changed by it. When God brings a work of redemption in your life, 
the surest sign that that's actually happened and it's not just, you know, something in your head is that you go and become an agent of redemption. And for the Christian, we know that we were dead in our sin. We were homeless. We were bankrupt before God. God saved us. And the clearest sign that we've actually experienced that salvation is that our hearts would go out to people who are lost spiritually, people who are lost, you know, in this world, people who are hungry spiritually, people who are hungry in this world, people who are hurting. This is one of the goals of this series. You know, the hope for the series, it was twofold. Number one, I want you to see that if your life story is messy, and it is, it's okay. It doesn't exclude you from the family of God. It actually puts you like in good company with the family of God because all of these stories are so strange. But the second goal of this series is that as we see what God has done in these women's lives, and as you hopefully experience the grace of God in new and fresh ways, is that it will shape you into a person who has a redemptive and gracious posture towards this world. Because God, God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it. And there's so much rhetoric in our culture right now. And there's a whole lot being thrown around, some of it illegitimate, a lot of it legitimate, about evangelical Christians and what we're about. I just want to say, if we're not about loving people who are in desperate situations, if we're not about loving outsiders and the hurting and the suffering, then what are we doing Like, do we actually believe anything that's being said here? At the heart of our story are all these women's lives, all of these outsiders, all these people who just made a total mess of their life. And somewhere along the way, Christianity, Christians in America started to say, well, if people deserve our help, then we'll offer it to them. But if they're in the mess that they're in because of decisions they've made, I don't know if we want to step into that. And it's so bizarre because it's just counter to Christianity, it's counter to the gospel. We made the mess. We couldn't clean up the mess. God said, I will come and clean up the mess for you. I will save you and I will redeem you. And so my prayer for you, one of the surest signs that the gospel has taken hold in your heart is that you don't look on outsiders or immigrants or people who are suffering You don't look at them as an annoyance or just, gosh, that stinks. You look at them and your heart goes out to them. Just like Boaz's heart went out to Ruth. As we come to the Lord's table, we celebrate the body of Christ that was broken for us. The blood of Christ that was shed for us. We remember when we come to the Lord's table, we don't bring anything. We bring our brokenness, our bruises, and our shame but our hands are empty and we come here and we take because our Lord's a God who gives and he gives to redeem and to give us a hope and a future. So my prayer for you is if you're in Christ, when you come to this table, that you might might have a spark of hope that you haven't had in a long time. For some of you, for others of you, I pray that you would, the spirit would bring conviction in your life, convict you of sin that needs to be addressed, of sinful attitudes or mindsets that need to be confronted. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in the the promise of redemption that God offers to every one of us in Jesus Christ. 
Let us pray.